0: Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. Beginning in verse 18, the Word of God says, The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon, and the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of God for the people of God this Sunday morning. I wonder as we begin, how many of you enjoy singing a hymn like Blessed Assurance? It's a beautiful hymn, isn't it? Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, oh what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. And as many of you know, I wish I had just a deep, bellowing voice that I could just belt that thing out with. I have... Uh, have all the heart to do it, but I've learned the hard way that I cannot, I can neither hold a note or carry a tune, and it's absolutely dreadful for me to actually try to do a solo act. That that doesn't stop me from from belting it out when we worship together. I'm just trusting that the sound guys have my mic muted when I'm doing it, and I'm also trusting that y'all are doing your part as you sing with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your love for Him, because as it says. Love covers a multitude of sins, including my sin of an inability to carry a tune. It also doesn't stop me from learning about songs like Blessed Assurance. The fact like that Blessed Assurance is a hymn written by a woman named Fanny Crosby in 1873. Imagine, 1873, Christians have been singing this hymn for 150 years now. Christians have been singing this song longer than First Baptist Church Divine has been in existence. And if you don't know this about Fanny Crosby, she was blind. And yet, to her credit, there are over 8,000 hymns that she was led to write. Now, we may think uh, about a disability like blindness being something that's so limiting. But I want to show you what Fanny said about her blindness as it relates to her faith in Jesus Christ. She said, when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Think about that. Let that sink in. Think about the expression of confidence that Fanny is communicating in that statement. Blind, but in no way is her faith restrained, Fanny Crosby knew that the scales of darkness that blinded her vision would be taken away in eternity, where she would look upon Jesus Christ, her Savior. And Fanny said that her inspiration when writing Blessed Assurance was that profound verse that we find in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the inspiration behind that verse, behind that hymn. Now, I can't even begin to fully unpack that single, first, that single verse and the depths that it mines. But I want to ask you, what is your outlook on death? You welcome it. Now, the Christian perspective on the subject of death is that there is gain for those who are in Christ by faith. We look forward to the rich reward of being in the presence of our Savior so that all the beauty and all the wonder that we have come to know in this life only but pales in comparison to the heavenly gain of being with Jesus. Now, this is a Ever changing world. So, I feel the need to just balance this briefly by saying that in no way is there a biblically informed outlook that permits you or I to bring about our own death. Because that would be a sinful act of rebellion against the one true God who has given us each life. It's God who's numbered our days, it's God who has placed us in this world, and it's God who's going to call us out of it. Our lives are not our own uh, to individually decide when we leave this world, and yet, because of the God who loves us, we do not need to have fear of death itself because of who Jesus is. Because of what Jesus has done. And because of what awaits those who are in him. You know, I'm sure this seems odd to hear right now. It's odd maybe for us to hear because we live in a culture that would have us attempt to soften the reality of death. Well, What is it that I mean by that? Let me give you an example. I've attended memorial services where there are no remains of the deceased, not even a picture. No semblance of death is present at these events. But the event is held in an outdoor setting that just has a wide array of the most colorful assortment of flowers against the backdrop of a, of a rich green springtime grass. All of this is an attempt to skirt around the reality that someone we knew has died. We even go so far as to say things that sound so sweet and sound so nice about our loved ones. But they're all false. You know them because you see them on the Facebook posts or wherever else goes out in response to the grief and mourning that ensues and follows death. We hear them as expressions like God needed him or her more. Or the sweet-sounding heaven gained another angel. They're false, untrue, unbiblical. God doesn't need any one of us. If he did, he wouldn't be God. When we die and that day is coming for each of us sooner than we care to think, we don't become angels. Angels are a completely different creature made separate from humanity. But yet, God needed him or she became an angel. They all sound so nice, don't they? They each in their own way attempt to soften the sharpness of death. And I understand the the desire to soften the message that death itself preaches. Death is something that no doubt will raise anxiety or fear within us. I mean, in one respect, when we look upon death, it appears to be the end when we see it. And in another respect, we acknowledge it's a door that we cannot see lays beyond it until we walk through it. And I need you to know it'd be unhealthy to fixate on the subject, but I also need you to know it's irresponsible to ignore it. So I got to ask this morning, and I do so with the greatest of sensitivity, can the inescapable reality of death actually be softened? Can it be? Well, let me start by addressing where these anxieties and these fears about our own death comes from. It comes from the fact that that God, our creator, intentionally designed us to live. And fear is a natural response to what we don't know or what we can't control. And I don't know if it's fear that is the right word to assign to John John the Baptist in our text this morning. In fact, I'll tell you, I wouldn't even go that, that far based on how he's presented as the fearless prophet who preached against all the evil ways of Israel while calling the nation to repentance and expectation for God's Messiah to arrive. And yet... In the way that our text opens this morning, I think it would be at least fair to say that John the Baptist maybe is a bit concerned. He's in need of some assurance. We see this in verses 18 and 19. He calls his disciples to him, and he says, Hey, will you go to Jesus, and will you ask, Are you the one who's to come, or do we need to look for somebody else? Now, I want to remind you, that the things that were reported to John that opened this verse is what we studied about the dead man that was made to rise at the command of Jesus when Pastor Carlos brought the message from verses 11 through 17 for you a few weeks ago. Now, Why didn't John see this himself, this miraculous raising from the dead? Why, why did he need such a report from his disciples? Well, that's because among all the things that John had been preaching about, John found himself in jail, found himself jailed for bringing attention to the sinful acts of the local ruler, Herod. Now, I know it's been a few months since we were in chapter 3, and it looks like it's an eternity before we get to the end of this book. But let me remind you, in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, it says, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John. In prison. Now, just as an aside, need to acknowledge that when God calls you to preach, when he calls you to teach his word, you undoubtedly will deal with sin and calling people to face the truth of their actions. And I'll add to that, that anytime you deal with truth, the truth will make everyone mad before the truth will ever set them free. So, so Herod had been called out and he's mad and his brother's wife that he's taken for himself, she ain't happy either. And it's fair to say that in in his time in prison, John the Baptist has come to some sense that his chances of walking away from this imprisonment, it's getting slim. It's pretty bleak. And the inescapable reality of John's death is now confronting him. In fact, it may be fair to suggest that he's now looking back on his life. I mean, this is a life that was based on the fact that, that he believed that everything his father Zechariah told him that was to, about was to, to become in his life. Or you remember about Zechariah, don't you? That came in chapter 1 when we opened this book in January. Do you remember how the angel showed up when Zechariah was on duty at the temple? And the angel foretold about how Zechariah's not yet conceived son would be named John, and this not yet conceived son would be filled by the Holy Spirit in his mother's tummy, and how how John would make a people prepared for the Lord? John had lived this, and here he was facing execution. And just talking about the terribly wrong things that people say about faith, you can look at John the Baptist and see that nowhere in the scriptures does God promise you a smooth and easy life. And so because of this, because of where he's at, because of what he's facing, John sends his disciples to Jesus with a question, and it's more of a request than anything else. Jesus is asked in verse 20, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? And behind this question... It's a need for assurance. John's at a crossroads, and he's reflecting. He's wondering, you know, was all this stuff I was told and all this stuff I lived about the Messiah, right? And let's get down to the nitty-gritty of it, because John's, John's, I mean, he's called, yes, but he's a normal man, you know, flesh and blood. All this stuff about God's kingdom, all this stuff about God's Messiah, it rides on the shoulders of his younger cousin, Jesus? And John's asking, are you really him? And in his response, Jesus isn't recorded as speaking. There's not even a head nod. There's 21. It's just action. In that hour, he, being Jesus, healed, uh, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, who were blind he bestowed sight. What's the Lord doing here? Why didn't didn't Jesus just give a simple yes answer? Because in his hour of trouble, John required assurance of who Jesus is. Now, even the strongest of us will come to places of need for assurance. I mean, think back to those times when you were children and and you and I were terrified by something. It may have been, uh, say, a strong thunderstorm that rolls rolls in at night in the springtime. Now, perhaps your imagination got the best of you after watching something scary. In each of those situations, where did you go to when they arrived? I suspect that for many of us, we tried to run straight into the arms of our parents to be comforted. We needed to be assured of, the, of their love. We needed to be assured of their protection. Now imagine under those same circumstances when uh, that that springtime thunderstorm is rolling through the clouds or the sky is pitch black and the wind is howling and there's lightning striking right outside your bedroom window and you go to your mama and she says, Honey, I love you. Now go to bed. It's not exactly the comfort that a child's looking for, is it? There ain't no way that words alone would have comforted any of us when we were in that situation. We need action to back up the words of love. Action to back up comfort. Action to bring us the nurture that we need. And the action to back up what we had heard before the time of trouble. For John the Baptist, I'm going to tell you, he was certainly aware of the Father in Heaven's promise of a Messiah. I mean, this promise had been written for hundreds of years before this day. Promises like what we see in Isaiah chapter 35, uh, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. You think this is word for word, of what Luke's talking about right now? And the ears of the deaf um, deaf and um, stopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Or even thinking back to what John was originally told by his disciples about a son who was made to rise from the dead. Earlier in Isaiah, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. John had heard all the father's promise of a Messiah. And here now, Jesus is offering assurance that he is that Messiah. Imagine for a moment when these disciples of John return in all their excitement, reporting what they had seen, what they'd been told, and the the incredible comfort that must have come from being wrapped up in the loving arms of God that assured John that all he had committed his life to was truly to prepare the way for God himself. To arrive. My friends, I only know in part the adversity that you have faced since you've been called into the salvation that Jesus Christ has offered to you. I only know in part about the family relationships or the the friendship relationships that have ended because of your faith. I only know in part even the aspects of the so called American dream that you have passed on as you have lived out. An attempt to live a God-honoring life. And there may be times of doubt that begin to creep in your mind. You may wonder if it makes sense to live a life that's dedicated to and sold out for Jesus. Because, well, frankly, there's bits of worldly wisdom out there that tell you the best thing to do as an investor is to diversify your portfolio. In other words, they'll tell you, don't ever put all your eggs in one basket. This is what John did. This is what Jesus calls us to do. This is what Jesus demands of us, to put all our eggs in his basket. And you need to remember this when it comes to the adversity and to the doubts. When the Holy Spirit calls and we come to Jesus in faith, God makes a promise. And when he gives a promise, he's always going to try our faith. Just as the roots of trees make firmer hold when they're contending with the wind, so faith takes a firmer hold with its struggles when the adverse appears. I need you to see this. Rest assured, when those doubts, anxieties, and fears come, Jesus Christ is exactly who he has said he is. He is king of all. Jesus is worthy of all reverence and honor and glory. He is Savior. It is his gospel, it's his invitation that will heal you. Now it's also apparent from the text that the question that's posed by the disciples of John was was posed in a public setting. We notice in the first part of verse twenty four, when John's messenger said gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. Why is it that Jesus feels the need to address the crowd about his cousin, John the Baptist? Well, for one thing, John was well known for his preaching in the region. And no doubt, his, this whole thing of him being arrested and this whole thing about be, him being imprisoned by Herod. Well, I'm going to tell you, they were probably suppertime conversations at many a Jewish table. And let's remember that John's preaching was confrontational. John's preaching was in your face. He called sinners to a, a baptism of repentance. And there wasn't a person in Jewish leadership that escaped John's preaching. And the ministry that God called John the Baptist to was one that gave many a sense of encouragement that God was at work in and through this man in the wilderness, this finger pointing. Certainly John's confidence and wild appearance endeared him to many. And this question of John's, well, it had the potential of sending those in the crowd into a sense of doubt. Maybe a doubt about who John was. if if what they have come to believe through his ministry was questionable. Maybe they just might doubt all of this. And Jesus senses this, and where he assured the disciples of John, who Jesus himself was earlier in the text, Jesus now offers two more words of assurance here. The first assurance he offers to the crowd is who John the Baptist is. That's what we see in verses 24 through 27. What's Jesus saying? Well, let me put it to you in these terms. Jesus is saying, in effect, don't you dare begin to doubt who John is. Why did you go out to see him in the first place? You know you didn't go out to see someone who had all the outward appearances of power like the rulers in these lands. No, you saw a man through whom God's power was revealed, not in the world's strength, but in weakness. Don't you dare doubt who John is, for he's the greatest of prophets that God has provided, for John is the fulfillment of God's promise to send a messenger to announce the arrival of God himself. My friends, in this response, I hope we have a sense for the loving and merciful God for whom John the Baptist prepared the way for. John asked, you saw, are you you really the one? And in meeting the request for assurance, Do you see that Jesus didn't wash his hands of John? And what I hope that you can see right now is that this same Jesus, who we know suffered and died in the place of sinners, he's not going to give up on you. He's not. He's Messiah. He is who he says he is. And because of who he is, he will neither leave you nor forsake you. I need you to hear this because you may have done something terribly regrettable this week. You might find yourself thinking about heavy things like your own death. And whether it's a regrettable decision you've made or those moments where uncertainty creeps in, you need to know that Jesus Christ will not give up on you. Where it says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, that Christ has obtained a ministry that is enacted on better promises. The promises of God in Christ is though, is though that when we waver, though when, when, when we doubt, though when we are unfaithful to King Jesus, Jesus is ever faithful. That's why it's a better promise. And we see that because John was God's child, God himself didn't deny him. No. God himself affirmed his own son. My friends, don't fear taking your doubts or your sin before the Lord. Jesus won't give up on you, but he will remind you who he has made you to be. And he will remind you of who he is making you to be because of of what God in the person of Jesus Christ has done in the cross. Now, the other thing that that Jesus assures the crowd of is this otherworldly nature of God's kingdom that's arriving in Jesus We see this in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What's Jesus getting at here? Why is is John John considered to be so great? That's a wonderful question. It has everything to do with the time in which John the Baptist was born. Now, so far in our studies, we've seen that God's Spirit has ensured that Luke connects the dots in how both John the Baptist and Jesus served to fulfill the promises that God made hundreds of years before the time that this morning's text takes us back to. God has called John to prepare the way for the arrival of God himself and the person of Jesus Christ. And saying this another way, God called John to announce the end of something called the Old Covenant, wherein Jesus would come the arrival of something called the New Covenant. And I really wish I had more time to go into those two subjects right now, uh, particularly the promises of God throughout history. But I'm going to have to leave, for you, leave this for you to explore maybe over your Thanksgiving break. It's a great study for you. But for now, I'll ask, when Joe read for us earlier in chapter 8 of Hebrews, do you remember where it was talking about this Old and New Covenants? Summarizing this, God gave the Old Covenant to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. In short, Uh, what was commanded by God under the Old Covenant wasn't how Jews were supposed to earn their salvation. But it was intended for them to understand how their sins could not easily or permanently be forgiven. And frankly, how much they needed God. And out of this was supposed to be a witness or a light unto the nations. And yet you read through the Old Testament and you find how often men and women had disregard for God. Forget the law. I know better. I'm going to do things my own way. And it's John who is the greatest born under this old covenant, this old age that's soon to pass away. And in Jesus, there would begin to arrive an age that is altogether different than the old age that John was born under. Like the ocean's tide that has reached its outermost point and is beginning to make its way back in. With Jesus comes the fulfillment of all that God has promised in the arrival of God's kingdom. In this new age, under this new covenant, sin can be forgiven once and for all because of who the sacrifice is. And those who have been forgiven by God are granted entrance into the kingdom of God because they have been born again. And Jesus says here that those who have been born again are greater than the greatest person born by the human generation. My friends, it matters more to be the least and the last person in this age of the new covenant born from above by the Spirit of God. So what do we need to take away? We need to rest assured in the promises to those who have been born again. My friends, if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are reborn to a a new life, to a new hope. You were bought with a price that we cannot even begin to fathom, a price that assures you that you are forever forgiven and that you are perfectly loved. And all of these assurances that I've spoken of this morning They come by faith in the everlasting triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's faith in God that seems to be the thing that people push back the most over these days, certainly in the days of of the book. I mean, I'm going to summarize for you verses 29 through 35, where we see the Word of God laying judgment upon those who reject God. Coincidentally, do you see how the Word of God reveals the nature of our hearts? With John the Baptist and Jesus in our view, as we move into this parable towards the end of our text, Jesus is preaching that that many people have rejected God's working in and through John and Jesus, because at the end of the day, the people who have rejected God have done so because they expect God to work and God to save on their own terms. You see that in verse 32. That's the essence of the parable here, the high point of it. A picture of children who are hollering at one another. And one is saying, we played a flute and we expected you to dance. What does this have to do with God and his work and his gospel and salvation? It's as if humanity is telling God, we said jump. And not only did you not jump, Lord, but you didn't ask how high. That's the point. Friends, isn't this the same today? Think with me for a moment. Because it's vitally important that we recognize that the illusion in the parable here about children in Jesus' parable, it's an illusion to people who are in the church. Jesus is talking about how so-called believers of God, how they didn't get it. I mean, here you have John making the way and the power of Elijah as promised. Here you have Jesus fulfilling every expectation of the Christ, of the Messiah as promised. And still, even though God is checking every box, it is humanity's pride and power that's blinded everyone to God's own presence in the world. These are the very same people who would crucify Jesus Christ in his innocence. Why is that? Because the message of God brings you and I to the place of conviction for the terribleness of our sin and the dreadful awareness that we can't do a thing to save ourselves. And for people today, God forbid, anyone in this room right now. The gospel's rejected on the essence that God came in the person of Jesus Christ. It's an affront. It's an offense. God, in human form? The the gospel's rejected, suggesting that Jesus lived, that he died, and that he rose again. And it's rejected because the gospel call is to depend fully in and only upon what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And this is where this gets too many of us tripped up. Because in our heads, we've heard this countless times, talking about a cross of Jesus Christ. And yet we still bank on what we can do. Kind of like we're saying that we're just looking to get a better grade than the person next to us in the pew today. We tell ourselves, you know, I've seen the way the person before me, behind me, around me has lived their life this week. And if I were God, I would be giving them a a grade of F. But if I were God, man, I'm I'm at least a C and C's get me in, right? We believe that we just need to be good people who try to live good lives and expect a, a good God to grade on the curve for these good people. My friends, if that's you... All I can say is what the Apostle Paul said to the church of Corinth in talking about the cross. He said, I, I preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. And he goes on to say, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. We really want to believe so much in ourselves, but it's to our own demise. There's no hope of a softened death for anyone who rejects the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's, it's in the cross that all of our beliefs in ourselves, frankly, are just laid naked and bare and found wanting. For when we look upon the terrible wrath that Jesus suffered for our sake, we cannot be struck to the heart, cannot but be struck to the heart with the truth of this. For hundreds of years, preachers have been saying this we contribute nothing to our salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. Think about that. You can't save yourself. But thanks be to God that there's a Savior who's been provided. And the only thing that you've provided for that salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Why is this important? Because if you reject the cross-loved ones, there is no softening of death. There is no hope in eternity. Do not reject the cross of Jesus Christ. Do not reject what God has provided at the se- that is the central point in human history. I, I, I said earlier, I'd love to teach history at the high school or even the middle school. We talk about such the great events in human history. The American Revolution, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, uh, the Age of Rome. All of this stuff. And we act like it's all important. The only thing that matters in human history that's changed the course of all history is the cross of Jesus Christ. It influences everything. Don't reject the power of God to save everyone who believes. Don't reject what God has done in Jesus Christ, which offers all who believe upon him unto salvation a promise that death's sting will be removed. It's just the cross. Don't reject that blessed assurance because blessed assurance is Christ's love at the cross. When you doubt, when you fear, return to the cross. And you'll find that Jesus is near. Near to you in every sense, granting a peace that surpasses all understanding. I can't will you to any of this. I can't, I can't put it in your brain. I can't plant it in your heart. All I can do is tell you about it. I can only point you to the one who offers such assurance. The one, Jesus Christ, whose death upon a cross offers all those who believe the reward of great gain in death. And even in staring death in the eye, grants the saved sinner the ability to proclaim like Paul, O oh, death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. and The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed assurance comes by the bloody cross of Jesus. No other way. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God has forgiven you through what Jesus has done for you on that cross? If you have, then you need to be like Fanny and you need to praise your Savior all the day long. You go to your supper table on Thursday, praise your Savior. Remember who you're giving thanksgiving to. And for each of you this morning who have yet to come to Jesus, in that cross... The arms of Jesus were nailed so that they were laid wide open. It's fitting, if you ask me. Fitting of the fact that in the cross of Jesus, you would know today that the arms of God are open to you. To welcome you as you repent for the sin that you contributed that made that cross necessary. Those open arms, they're not going to reject you. Surrender to him. Trust that it is he who's done it all. And you can rest assured. Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.